I'd like to invite your attention to the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and specifically verses 12 and 13. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, the great apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Infighting, backbiting, dissension is never good, especially so when it takes place in the church. That's what was happening in Philippi. There were some of its members who were not getting along. And apparently this was more than just a minor disagreement, excuse me, because uh, Paul considered the dispute serious enough uh, to put pen to paper and send them a letter in which he addresses the issue. And I think it's important to point out that he writes to them as one who loves them. And we clearly see that in verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved. He doesn't write out of anger. Perhaps he writes with a certain amount of frustration. But he doesn't write out of anger. Instead, he writes out of love. If he could have, he would have went to the church and put his arms around them and said, listen, there's something we need to talk about. Certainly, it's a heart of love, but it's also a heart that is burdened because of what is taking place in the church. And he writes to them to encourage them to live in unity. He writes to them to help them understand that as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, as followers of Christ, as those who are greatly loved by their Savior, they must follow the example that Jesus provides which means that they must be willing to set aside their own needs and their own interests and put the needs and the interests of others before their own. They must be willing to sacrifice their own preferences for the sake of others. And one of the wonderful things about the gospel, of which there are many, but one of the wonderful things about the gospel is the power that it has to unite even the most diverse group of people. But what is the key to living in unity? Well, we've examined this in some detail, and it's humility. Humility. And that's exactly what Jesus demonstrated. He demonstrated humility by not feeling the need to cling to or to grasp his equality with God. He demonstrated humility by taking on the form of a servant, by taking on the very essence of of a bondservant. He was willing to humble himself. And it's these actions of the Lord Jesus that are what Paul refers to as he begins verse 12, when he begins verse 12 with the word therefore. When we read the word therefore, we know that everything that Paul's about to write to them is flowing out of what Jesus has done for all believers, not just the believers in Philippi, but for all believers in all places at all times. So that helps us to understand why Paul begins verse 12 by addressing the subject of obedience. He wants them to continue to follow the example of Jesus. He wants them to follow the example that Jesus set by humbling himself for the sake of others, 
The example that Jesus set by humbling himself for the welfare of others, putting the needs of others first. But he also wants them to follow the obedience that Jesus demonstrated in his incarnation by the fact that he was willing to come to earth. The fact that he was willing to take on a body such as you and I have with all of its weakness and frailties. He was willing to become hungry, tired, thirsty, deprived for our sake. In living in perfect obedience to his father, Jesus lived in perfect obedience to his father, and it was an obedience, as we have seen, that culminated in death, even the death on the cross. So let's pause for just a moment here and think about the implications that the obedience of Christ has for you as a Christian. How should the obedience of Christ impact all of those who profess faith in Christ? Well, isn't it true that when I say that I'm a Christian, that is to say that I'm following in the footsteps of Jesus? I think the Bible would say yes. Isn't it true that when I profess to be a Christian, that is to say that I'm striving to live as Jesus did? Again, I would say, the Bible would say, yes. And isn't it true that when I say that I'm a Christian, that is to say that I'm living my life in such a way that others could identify my lifestyle as being uniquely Christian? Again, I think the Bible would say yes. And though there are lots of dominant characteristics, if you will, in the life of Christ, certainly obedience would have to be numbered among them. It was his obedience to doing the will of the Father. It was his uh, commitment to doing everything, to obeying everything that the Father wanted him to do that set him apart. Therefore, to align yourself with Christ would be to align yourself, to commit yourself, to have the same level of desire to obey. To align yourself with Jesus is to align yourself with the level of obedience that the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated. Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Again, Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You cannot separate obedience from your profession of faith. Faith without works is what? What does James say? Dead. Alistair Begg says, For a professing Christian to live in persistent and habitual disobedience was not only for Paul merely a sign of immaturity, it was for Paul an absolute absurdity. Yet what do we find today? We find scores of those who claim the name evangelical, they're an evangelical Christian, but they have absolutely no desire to obey the Lord Jesus. How many people are around us today who profess faith in Christ yet have no desire to be with God's people? 
That seems incongruous with the, the life of a believer. So I highlight Paul's emphasis on obedience here in light of what I've repeatedly emphasized, that there can be no sanctification apart from obedience. Sanctification means that we start doing the things that God asks us to do. If you're not doing what God has clearly revealed in his will to do, you're not making any progress in sanctification. You're not being obedient. Sanctification is not something that we should take lightly. You know, sometimes today people will say, well, Jesus is my Savior, but he's not my Lord. Then he's not either. There is no salvation in Christ if you will not accept the Lordship of Christ. So how do I know if I've accepted the Lordship of Christ? Are you obeying him? Do you do what he asks? Not perfectly. None of us will. But is the overall pattern of your life one of obedience? Is there heartbreak and regret over your sin? Do you mourn over your sin? Do you desire to be rid of your sin? Or have you made peace with your sin? And You're not making progress in sanctification. And the working out of our salvation is not an option. It's not like it's an elective in the life of the Christian that you can choose or not choose. Sanctification is the core curriculum of the Christian life. Perhaps it would be helpful to think, in, think of this in these terms. Paul says, take into account what Jesus has done for you. Take into account all that Jesus has set aside for you. You should be more than willing. Indeed, you should be eager to do whatever is necessary in order to work out your own salvation. And living with humility, living in unity is one of the ways that we work out our own salvation. We, we, must, we must see this as part of a whole. We can't separate humility and unity from the goal of becoming like Christ. So I think it's reasonable to conclude that if a person is not willing to live in humility, if they're not willing to live in unity... That your unwillingness is a, should be a visible demonstration to you because it is a visible demonstration to others that you're not obeying the Lord's command to work out your own salvation. Which I think would biblically lead us to conclude that the one who continues to persist in their disobedience and their unwillingness that they indeed are not filled with the Holy Spirit. You can't be filled with the Holy Spirit and be disobedient. And if we continue to resist, if we continue in our disobedience, it would be time for us to consider that in fact we do not possess the Holy Spirit. Not that we simply aren't filled with the Spirit, that we don't possess the Spirit. Which means that we are not Christians at all. Well, with that word of warning, let's get back to the text and ask this question. Is God asking us to do the impossible? Is God asking us to do the impossible? So we read this command to work out our salvation. That sounds like an impossible task and responsibility. And as I said, I think it was last week, it would be so easy to become discouraged by Paul's instruction if it were not for the Apostle Paul assuring us that we are capable of working out our own salvation because God is at work in us. Therefore, the working out of our salvation is not an impossibility. It is what? It is a certainty. Why? 
Because God is at work in us. Does God ever fail at anything? No, never. Perish the thought. So if you want to make progress in your sanctification, we must understand the vital role that God plays and the role that you play as well. And so that's what Paul's doing here. He's explaining, if you will, the mechanics of sanctification. He clearly spells out who does what. What is your role in your sanctification, and what is God's role in your sanctification? Now, let me caution you again, because uh, some of us have the tendency. Uh, we may be high achievers. We are uh, driven people. We are highly ambitious. And so the tendency would be for us, for those who uh, are like that, to try and take on too much, to take on too much responsibility. So we want to be sure that we don't take on too much, while at the same time, we want to make sure that we don't take on too little. God will most assuredly do His part. Well, we must make the same commitment that God has to us that we will do our part. Our responsibility is to do the work that is required in order for us to grow in Christ's likeness, to grow in holiness to become more like Christ. And we work confidently because we know what? We know that God is at work within us. There is not a time in your life when God is not working in you. You may not detect it. You may try and shut it down. But if you are a true believer, if you are truly in Christ, if you have been born again, he will continually be at work in your life. Well, let me ask you a question, because I, 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 I think we need to deal with this to a certain degree. And here's the question. And don't answer too quickly. Think about it for just a moment. Do you really trust God? And I know the answer we all want to give is, yes, yes, of course I trust God. How dare you say that I don't trust God? I, I'm not saying that. I just want you to examine yourself and see, are you truly trusting God? But down deep, only where you know your thoughts, do you really trust God? Now, here's the reason I say that, because our experiences in life can lead us or can erode, let me put it that way, can erode our trust in God? Perhaps the conduct, the actions of your earthly father has colored your perceptions and your understanding of God as father. Perhaps you struggle with understanding why it is that God has allowed you to suffer in the past or perhaps why God continues to allow you to suffer in the present. Perhaps you struggle with your past and because of your past struggle, you struggle to trust God in the present. And the reason I bring it up is because it's an issue that you have to deal with. It is, would you look at it this way? It's part of working out your salvation. You have to get back to that place where you're trusting God. You have to get back to the place where you're trusting God. You trust God will what? Help you. Work out your own salvation. See, if you listen to me week after week, get up here and bang away on work out your own salvation, 
and you have no confidence, no trust in God that God's going to help you, what's happening? Nothing. I want you to know that every believer at some point struggles to trust God. Even David, who the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart, experienced times in his life when he struggled in trusting God. So the question is, how do we recover our trust in God? Let me give you two things. By the way, let me recommend a good book for you, uh, Jerry Bridges, Trusting God. If you struggle in this area, go get it and read it. Two things. First of all, the Bible teaches that trusting God is a choice. It's a choice. David said in Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4, When I am afraid. Now notice this. Here's a man after God's own heart, a mighty warrior. Uh, what was the, the song that was sung in Israel? Saul was killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. He's a mighty warrior. Here's the guy who took on Goliath. But yet he says, when I am afraid. What do you do, David? I put my trust in you, in God, whose, whose word I praise, in God I trust. And now notice what he says next. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? See, trusting God has nothing to do with how you feel. You say, I don't feel like trusting God. That's not the issue. It's got nothing to do with it. Trusting God is an act of the will. Trusting God is to make a choice. Trusting God is to make an intellectual decision to trust God. Second, trusting God is a result of our being filled with the Holy Spirit. To trust God is to say that you have faith in God. And what does the fruit of the Spirit produce in us? He produces faith in us. So if you are struggling with trust... Don't try and work up a feeling. Seek the filling of the Holy Spirit. Go to the Scriptures. Read the Scriptures. Memorize the Scriptures. Meditate on the Scriptures. Seek the filling of the Holy Spirit. You have to come to the place where you trust God. You have to have faith that God will indeed provide everything that you need in order for you to work out your own salvation. You have to come to that place because until you do, you will not use all of the resources, all of the benefits that are yours because you are in Christ. And if you try and work out your own salvation using your own skills, your own abilities, your own power, you know what? You're going to quickly become frustrated. Have you ever tried to do some kind of a home improvement project and you didn't have the right tool? We've all been there. We used a butter knife or a screwdriver, right? Or something hard as a hammer. Never works out well, does it? It usually just creates what? Frustration. Why? Because we don't have the right tools available to us in order to get the job done properly. Well, you as a Christian, if you are not taking advantage of the tools that God has made available to you to help you work out your own salvation, you're going to be one frustrated worker. So therefore, 
Trust God. Have confidence in God that he has provided you with everything that you need to get the job done. So what is your role? What is your role in working out your own salvation? Your role, your responsibility, this may be bad news for some of us, but it is to do the work. To do the work. Your responsibility is to embrace all the benefits, all the resources that God has provided for you in your salvation, and to use all those benefits, all those resources to work out your own salvation. So here's how it goes. If God has made you a promise, what is your responsibility? Believe the promise. Well, I say that can be hard to do it at, at times. That's why it's called work. When you pray the Lord's Prayer and the Lord's Prayer says that, hey, you need to forgive others. What do you have to do? Forgive others. Can that be hard at times? Can that seem next to impossible at times? Absolutely, but we do the hard work. We read the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. What are we supposed to do? We learn the gospel. We look for opportunities to share the gospel. We do whatever we can to reach our families, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, whomever God gives us the opportunity. We use that opportunity. We do the hard work of evangelism. Evangelism is not easy. You ought to read the little book by Rico Tice called Honest Evangelism. It's really a wake-up call that helps us uh, get out of this dreamlike state that we're going to walk up to people and share the gospel with them. And they'll say, oh, thank you. God bless you. I've been waiting for this for, for my entire life. No. We wish that would happen every time, but you know what? It probably won't. But that does not mean that we can say, oh, well, I tried it once. doesn't work. Uh, let somebody else do it. No. We do the hard work of evangelism. In other words, Paul is saying that you and I must be willing to expend whatever effort is necessary in order to work out our salvation. Commentator William Hendrickson said this, writing about the Philippians, their salvation is a process in which they themselves, far from remaining passive or dormant, take a very active part. It is a pursuit, a following after, a pressing on, a contest, fight, race. Now think about each one of those terms. Pursuit, following, pressing on, content, contest, fight, race. All of those things take what? They take effort. We have to expend energy. They denote strenuous activity. They all require for significant amounts of energy to be expended. Are you not making much progress in sanctification? Are you frustrated with the slow rate of your growth in Christ-likeness? Could it be you're simply, and I say this with love, you're lazy? You're not consistently reading the scriptures? When's the last time you memorized a verse of scripture? When's the last time you meditated on a portion of scripture? See, these are the items of hard work that we have to put the effort and the energy into in order to grow, to work out our own salvation. When the Bible tells us to stop doing something, what do we have to do? Stop doing it. When the Bible tells us to start doing something, what do we have to do? Start doing it. 
Steve Lawson says, spiritual couch potatoes grow little in grace or holiness. Being in prayer, studying the Bible, and then obeying it in your life requires serious work. Every believer must resist temptation, James 4, 7, and discipline themselves for godliness. That's 1 Timothy 4, 7. So, for instance, the Bible tells us to pray. What do we have to do? We have to make time, and we have to put forth the effort in order to pray. Let's not sugarcoat this. Praying is one of the most difficult things that you will do as a Christian. Right? Did you struggle to pray this morning? Did you pray this morning? Do you find it so hard to focus? Have you found that 10 or 12 things pop into your head that you think, well, maybe I should stop and do that, or maybe I should stop and do this? Why? It takes some effort. It takes, we have to focus. We have to concentrate. Prayer can be hard work. But as we do the work, we do so with the knowledge that God is at, work with, is at work within us. What's our role? Do the work. You mean I just can't sit back and be sanctified? Nope. You don't walk out in the middle of a thunderstorm and say, okay, God, zap me. No, he says, hey, use the common sense I gave you. Get back inside, open your Bible, and let's get down to work. What's your role? Do the work. What's God's role? Well, Paul says that God is doing two things within us. First, God is giving us the desire to do the work. That's the will. That's what Paul refers to when he says God is at work in you both to will. Just read that as God is giving you the desire to do the work which results in God's good pleasure. And again, I'll emphasize this fact. God is at work in the life of every believer, creating in them the desire to do good works. Now, we can try and shut it off. We can squash it and quash it and try and ignore it. But that desire will always be there. It may be faint. It may be a flicker. It may be a roaring blaze. But it will be there. God is at work in the life of every believer creating in them the desire to do good works. For instance, do you ever have the urge to pray? Where does that come from? God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do not ignore that, please. I know we do. So I'll get to it later. No. When the Holy Spirit impresses you to pray, pray. Same thing with reading your Bible. Don't you have those times, man, you just want to read the Bible? Do you have the same desire for God's Word as you do for physical food? You just have to have it? And other things just won't satisfy? So God gives us the desire to do the work. And maybe a little light bulb's going off in your head right now when you hear that phrase, work. Where, uh, where else does Paul talk about good works? Ephesians chapter 2. Paul said, for by, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, human works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. What's it say? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Why were you created in Christ Jesus? Just to escape hell? That's a benefit. But you were created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. And by the way, it's the same good works that Paul's referring to in Philippians chapter 2. Again, this desire, the desire to, pull, to perform good works resides within every believer. That desire to will and to work for God's good pleasure was implanted in you at the moment of your conversion. So Paul says God is at work in us both to will and to work. Now, what does that word work refer to here? Well, the word work here means to function or for something to do what it was intended to do. The word work means for something to perform as expected. It means to produce a desired effect. So what's the, the desired effect? To work out our own salvation. To make our sanctification a priority. To perform the good works we were created in Christ Jesus to do. To do the work that brings God pleasure. Say, what does it mean that we bring God's pleasure? We, we create a sense, if I can say it in this, this way, a sense of satisfaction in God. He looks at us and sees that we are responding to his work in us, and that brings him pleasure. That's what that phrase means. So God, in his grace, provides us with the power, the energy, the desire to work out our own salvation. Gordon Fee says this verb, work, as elsewhere, does not so much mean that God is doing it for them, but that God supplies the necessary empowering. Their obedience is ultimately something God affects in and among them. Not only does God empower their doing, but also the willing that lies behind the doing. That's why that desire, boy, oh boy, oh boy, be on the lookout for that desire. And if you're missing that desire, do a spiritual checkup. See if there's Lisa flickering flame there. There's no desire. I don't mean to offend you. There's probably no salvation. Alistair Begg says, God's word of command is God's word of enabling. God's word of command is God's word of enabling. Say, so what's he mean by that? Well, let's examine a miracle of Jesus to see exactly how this works out. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus encountered a man who was paralyzed and confined to his bed. And what did Jesus say to that man? Jesus said, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, again, we are so familiar with Scripture that sometimes we really miss the weight of what's going on in a passage. Here's a man paralyzed. He's helpless. And Jesus looks at him and says, rise, which is what? Impossible for him to do. He's paralyzed. Rise, pick up your bed and go home. I mean, on the face of it, if it wasn't Jesus saying that, those would be horrifically callous words. Think about that. Here's a man who can't Help himself. And Jesus says, rise, 
pick up your bed and go home. Well, what happened? Well, the next verse says, and he rose and went home. Say, how did that happen? God's word of command is God's word of enabling. Okay? I've been dying to sing this song for weeks. I sent that email out this week saying we'd sing this song before they even knew they were going to sing the song. Amen. I have, I have this song on a loop. Feed your mind with the truth of this. I mean, this is just a, just a fantastic song. Verse 2, I can walk down this dark and painful road. I can face every fear of the unknown. I can hear of all God's children singing out, we will not be overtaken, we will not be overcome. Then that chorus, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, the grave, the same power that commands the dead to wake lives in us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe it? The same power that moves mountains when he speaks, the same power that can calm a raging sea lives in us, lives in us, he lives in us, he lives in us. Do you believe it? Until you believe it, don't stop listening. Don't stop reading. I know it's hard for us to comprehend. We talk a lot about God's power. We sing about God's power. But do we believe in God's power? Do we believe that it's available to us? Do we believe that God is pleased to use his power on his children's behalf? If not, go back to the Old Testament. See how God intervened time and time and time again on behalf of his people. I love the stories of the Old Testament. I love the stories of the Exodus. I love that story when they come uh, on the shore of the Red Sea. They've got no place to go. Water in front, Pharaoh's army behind them. What do you do? What did God say? Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. And what did he do? He parted that sea and they crossed over on dry land and the Egyptian army got down in the midst of it. And what happened? He turned the spigot back on. They were saved. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Take a stand for God. He throws them in the flames. You would think, game over? No. There's a fourth man in the fire. Same power. Lives in us. He lives in us. Daniel in the lion's den, hopeless, 80-year-old fella, spending the night with the cats. Not much hope that he's going to come out alive, but he does come out alive. Why? He lives in us. He lives in us. David, four foot something, Goliath stretching to the sky. It looks like a hopeless cause. There's no way that this little guy can defeat Goliath. But he does. He lives in us. He lives in us. What are you battling? What is it that you think that you'll never overcome? He lives in us. He lives in us. Do not, I beg you, do not sell God short.
Therefore, God's word of command to work out our own salvation is God's word of enabling. You are no different than the paralyzed man, man that Jesus came to and said, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus says, Rise, work out your own salvation. He lives in us. He lives in us. And you can work it out because God is at work within. So I ask you, have you fallen into the trap as Steve Lawson described? Have you become a spiritual couch potato? And it's so easy to do. You know, we have access. We have access to so many good Christian resources. You know, and, and you know, it's very easy for us to virtually visit some quality churches. You can tune in and watch Alistair Begg. You can tune in and watch John MacArthur. Uh, you can tune in and uh, watch some other guy. You can virtually visit a dozen churches every week. But you know what? Until you start putting that knowledge to use, it's useless. You have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Listening to God's Word is only the first step in working out our salvation. And as we've seen, it requires a desire to work it out. It takes energy to work it out. The good news is that God has provided everything that we need in order to work out our own salvation. But it is, it is up to us to do the work. So I just close with this question, are you doing the work? Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.7, now, the order here is important. So you're not going to preach a whole sermon again, are you? I'm going to try not to. So Hank, bear with me. Paul said to Timothy, think over what I say. Now, mark the, mark the order. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. You see the significance here? You want to understand Scripture? You want to know God more intimately? Well, here's what you have to do. Think. Think. It'd be nice if God would just open our brains and pour in all this knowledge. He doesn't. He won't. Quit waiting for it. Paul says to Timothy, listen, I've written you this letter. I've given you this knowledge. But here's what you have to do, Timothy. You have to do more than read this letter. Think over what I say and then what happens? For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I give the same advice to those who are considering the ministry. Learn to meditate on Scripture. You may not know an, an ounce of Greek. It does not matter. Think on these things, and God will give you understanding. Learn to meditate on Scripture. Learn to think deep thoughts on the scriptures.